be seated. If you have a copy of the Word of God, I encourage you this evening to turn once again to Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. Luke, chapter 9. We know so little about what awaits us. We are very ignorant of the glory of our Lord Jesus that will yet be unveiled to us someday, those of us who are in Christ, to think that He who made us and made us for Himself will one day give us the capacity to see Him in a way we've never seen Him before. And so we await that day and we occupy until that day, laboring for Him, I trust, so that we would be found faithful. And we're given a little gl- glimmer into the glory of our Lord in this chapter. Luke chapter 9, verse 28 is where we will commence reading tonight. And it's a well-known portion in one sense, and yet I have a sense that There's maybe much about it that is easy for us to miss, or a lot of it that we don't fully understand. But we will do our best this evening. Luke chapter 9, verse 28, let us hear the word of the Lord. And it came to pass about eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, And his raiment was white and glistering. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. And it came to pass, as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias, not knowing what he said. While he thus spake, there came a cloud, and overshadowed them. And they feared as they entered into the cloud. And there came a voice out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone. And they kept it close, and told no man in those days any of those things which they had seen. Amen. May the Lord give us understanding in His Word this evening, and may we not come to it with uh, a lack of prayer, a lack of desire to hear from Him. We, we need to hear from Him tonight, as always, and may it therefore be received with profit. Let us pray. Let's seek the Lord one more time before we open up His Word together. Lord, we need help always when we come to Thy Word. We are so desperately powerless to truly discern that which only the Spirit can teach us. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. We're thankful that Thou hast given us the Spirit, and therefore there are truths that may be hidden to those that are unconverted that we understand. And yet there is more for us to learn. There are truths that we will never fully plumb the depths of, and even eternity itself will be a constant learning, a growing in knowledge of Jesus Christ, who He is and what He has done. 
Lord, we pray, therefore, that we would be good students here. We need to be taught of God. And so, God, we come. We come before Thee this night. We pray that Thou wilt remove from us those hindering things, the distractions of yesterday and tomorrow, the difficulties of the present times, the various experiences of our lives that weigh upon our minds and hearts, and anything and everything that would hinder the Word of God being preached and having free course and being glorified among us. So therefore, we commit our way to Thee. As a congregation, we plead the merit of the blood of Christ and plead that for Christ's sake and upon the merit of the blood, the Spirit would be poured forth upon us, sanctifying all Thy people and saving those still in their sins. So guide this preacher. Cause us, cause us to know the help the, the enablement, not just of the flesh and of the mind, but of the Spirit. Condescend then, magnify Christ in our presence. We pray in His precious and all-worthy name. Amen. No doubt much has been written and said about this event that we have read this evening, often referred to as the Mount of Transfiguration. There is a sense, as I have indicated already, that where we have come this evening in this portion of Luke's gospel is, in one sense, holy ground. It brings us to a place where the Lord unveils His glory in a fashion that otherwise was not seen throughout His ministry. And there's much about it that brings mystery, much that I think we miss as we seek to study it. Even as I was sitting down to prepare, I had an outline that was constructing these verses together, looking at it in its various uh, parts in relation to the individuals and those that are spoken of and dividing it all up. And then as I sat back and considered it and thought, well, what really is the heart of this? What is the intent of the passage? Why is this given? What are we to learn? And I ended up just scrapping the entire outline and getting back to trying to understand exactly what is in this text. And and I trust I'm on the right lines. I trust that the Lord has given us the insight that we need as we come to these verses and that it would be considered with profit this evening as we look at it. There are a number of preliminary things before we consider the text. You can see how it begins in verse 28. It came to pass about an eight days after these sayings. He took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And if you were to compare Matthew and Mark with this and their account of the Mount of Transfiguration, you will note that they say, after six days. And so often then the accusation may be made, well, it seems as if the, the, the gospel writers didn't know exactly what was going on. They were just making things up as they went along, and, and perhaps there was, there's error here, human error, and therefore the Word of God is not reliable. But it is in these little details sometimes that actually confirms the reality of the legitimacy of the Word of God. If these men were working together, if they were all endeavoring to, to be precise in the record and collaborating in a collaborative effort, then details like this would not, be, would, would not happen. We wouldn't have these slight differences in the record. The simple fact is, as you read it, when you read Matthew and Mark, they say after six days. But, but Luke really uses a term that essentially means about a week when he says it, came, it says it came to pass about an eight days after these sayings. He's giving a general sense about a week, about a week after the things that we've already considered, the, the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ to his disciples and the crowd that were there. If you go back to verse 23 to refresh your memory, when he called them, if any man will come after me, 
let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, and so on and so forth. So about a week after that, six days according to Matthew and Mark, this event transpires where the Lord Jesus takes the inner three, Peter and James and John, up into a mountain. In fact, we're told in one of the Gospels it was up into a high mountain. And so there's a sense in which the Lord is, is, is pulling His disciples away from the crowd. There's a deliberate effort to get away from, from the masses that were following Him, trying to find a place of seclusion where this event could take place and the lessons could be learned. I've entitled my message this evening, An Unforgettable Lesson on Communion. An Unforgettable Lesson on Communion. Because as I went back over these verses, sought to see exactly what it is we can learn from this passage, my mind was brought over and over again to the, the heart of the issue. It's not just the details. It's not just the events. It's not just the glory. It's not just all that is put before them. It is, it is at its heart a reflection of the glory and the wonder and the privilege of communion with God. This is the purpose for which we were made, beloved, to have communion with God. This was the intent. This is how Adam was placed in the garden. He was placed in the garden with the privilege and the blessing of sweet and unhindered communion with God. He was not placed there just to live out his life and conduct his affairs and exercise his responsibilities and tending and keeping the garden. The entire time, whatever the responsibilities would be placed upon him, the heart of his experience was one of fellowship, of communion, of knowing God. Whatever we are as a people, whatever we are as a church, Whatever you become as a Christian, however you are known, there's no higher accolade, there's no higher experience than being one who knows what it is to have real communion with God. This is the goal. Even our Lord's Day worship services, they, they, are, they are, of course, a public expression of our faith in Christ a public expression of the body of Christ, the union that believers enjoy in Christ. There are many things we could say, but, but part of it also is an aid to, an encouragement in fellowship with God. There is no more important aspect of our Christian lives. It is that we might know God, that we might know the Son, and truly fellowship with Him. Amen. Without that, we have nothing. And I know many of you know this. You have been taught this. The entire experience of this church has been one where whoever has been in this pulpit has exhorted you, not just in the doctrine, not just in the particulars, not just in the history, but in the need for communion with God. We can hear this over and over and over again, and yet we can lose out. And we are certainly in days where we need to regain something of the focus, the focus of our lives, fellowship, communion with God. Amen. So as we consider this, there are a number of things I want us to see. An unforgettable lesson on communion begins with this, the highest form of communion, the highest 
form of communion. Verse 28, It came to pass about an eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. He went up into a mountain to pray. Christ determined once again to take the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. For whatever reason, we can't say exactly why certain occasions he, he pulled this, these three together and other times the entire uh, group of the twelve were with him. But in part, no doubt, it is to do with their need to be prepared for a greater work. They are going to be leaders in the church, pillars in the church. But it is also a defense of the scriptural need for two or three witnesses if any event is to be established, if we are to be able to assert that something actually took place, the Bible says that there must be two or three witnesses. And so if you turn to First Peter chapter 1, I'm just, just wondering if I've got that reference right. Because I think it's Second Peter, yes, it's Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. The Apostle Peter in his epistle here refers back to this very event. And he says in verse 16, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. We were eyewitnesses. And, and there seems in the language that uh, Peter's communicating that part of the reason why they were there is to be witnesses. Now, they don't go and tell the world what happened at the time, as if you were paying attention to the last verse we read, but now they're able to bear record of it. They'll be able to testify to the fact that this happened. You can see then verse 17, He received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to Him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were there with him in the holy mount. So this is Peter's record of the event, his account of what happened, at least in brief, on this occasion. But what was happening there is the Lord Jesus brings these men, yes, to bear witness to the events that unfold, but it begins, it begins, note it, it begins with him going up into a mountain to pray. Everything begins with prayer, the unveiling of His glory, the fellowship, the, 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 the this voice of the Father from, from heaven itself. All of this is because it begins with the communion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, beloved, we, we, we need to underline and remind ourselves that the, that the most important aspect of our lives is, is prayer in a certain sense. Prayer is, as I have said before, quoting other men before me, prayer is the most spiritual act one can engage in. That's why we find it so difficult, and yet that's why it's so essential. Prayer reflects more than anything else that sense of personal communion with God. Even our reception of the Word of God often depends upon the way in which we enter into the presence of God. How the Word of God affects our hearts, how we are impacted by it, how we receive it, how we are sanctified by it can so often hinge upon the way that we pray. Now, Luke is the only one to mention the fact that Jesus Christ enters into the mountain to pray. Matthew doesn't mention it. Mark doesn't mention it. But Luke does. And of course, this is, this is common with Luke, isn't it? If you remember, even at the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ, you have the same thing. Matthew accounts the same event, but only Luke pays 
makes reference to the fact that as he was, as he was being baptized, as he entered into the waters, that, that there was, and as the Spirit of God came upon him, he was praying. So Luke seems to have a keen interest in this. He has an interest in the prayer life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whereas Mark doesn't make reference to it, Matthew doesn't so often, nor John. Look constantly where he is able, underlines this fact that, that our Lord Jesus was praying. I wonder, was it the fact that he wasn't there that made him so interested in that? I wonder, was it his own curiosity about the fact that, that, that he heard about the Lord Jesus, he's receiving all this information about the Lord Jesus, but he could not envisage all this happening because he wasn't there at the time but he had this personal interest. Well, well, well how did he go up the mountain? How, did, how was he baptized? What was transpiring when he went to this place and that? And he finds out details that the others pass over, particularly in this area, that Christ was in prayer as he engaged in these various activities and went to these various places. The highest form of communion is prayer. Prayer is to be the heartbeat of the child of God. When we are prayerless, we are powerless. When we are prayerless, we have no testimony of any significance or meaning. A prayerless Christian is a contradiction. A Christian who refuses to seek God is someone who is disjointed at very best. We are to be a people who are in fellowship with God. And it's not my business week after week to get up and preach sermons on prayer and, and try to guilt you into more prayer and measuring your prayer and, and seeing if you're improving in your prayer life. That's, that's not my job. But I want you to feel the impact of the example of the Lord Jesus Christ here as He engages in the most intimate experience going in before the Father in this attitude of prayer. The highest form of communion as modeled by the Son of God is prayer. How is your prayer life, child of God? How is it with you and the Lord? What is it that's maybe hindering? What is it that's causing you to come up short from where you may have been before, before the Lord? And we can ignore it. We can sideline it. We can say, well, the Lord knows I love Him. But you know as well as I know that we are devoid of any real sense of intimacy and appreciation for our Savior if we do not get before Him, acknowledge Him, pray to Him, thank Him, and receive from Him His Word daily in the place of prayer. You want to know the weakness of the church? See her in prayer, or rather in the lack of it. Want to understand the, the struggles of most believers' lives and why they can't face their trials and why they struggle to deal with all the things that in the providence of God come to them? See them neglect the place of prayer. Want to know why it seems as if we're, we find it impossible to convince people about the truth? See the lack of prayer. The highest form of communion is prayer. 
Peter and James and John have this privilege again of being cut off from society to see Jesus Christ. This would not be the sole time they would witness this. This happened often in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the one event that is detailed to us, of course, is that time when he goes to Gethsemane just before he is arrested and taken away. But he is in Gethsemane to pray. And he pulls Peter and James and John alongside him in the garden to watch while I pray. Therefore the Lord Jesus, if nothing else, is impressing upon the leaders of the church the importance of communion. That your ability to do your work will depend upon your communion. You want to see the problem of most of the church today? It comes back to this. In the pulpit, in the pew, at every level, our neglect of prayer, our inability to take our Lord seriously and wait before Him. Secondly, the ultimate end of communion. The ultimate end of communion. Not only the highest form of communion is here, but the ultimate end of communion. Verse 29, And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistering. As he prayed, there's a change that takes place. This is the ultimate end of communion. It is not just to bring your prayer list. It is to be changed. It is to be transformed. It is to bring yourself into the presence of God and for God Himself to put a mark upon you of Himself. It is as Moses who went up into the mount and came back down after 40 days with his face glowing because he had been in the presence of God, in fellowship with God. The ultimate end of communion is to change us. You note here that it changed his body. His countenance, the fashion of his countenance was altered. There's a transformation that takes place here. Matthew 17 verse 2 records, His face did shine as the sun. Couldn't look into it. Again, like Moses. His experience of being in the presence of God. I don't know how long they were up there. I doubt it was 40 days and 40 nights. But they are up there waiting. And Peter and James and John are able to see something they had only read of. As they had read of Moses and his experience, now they see it. Depicted in Christ even to a more glorious degree. It changed his body. It transformed his garments. We're told also that his raiment was white and glistering. Mark's account, Mark 9, 3, says his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow. I'm not so sure how much experience those of you in South Carolina have with the mixture of sun and snow, because it tends that when the sun appears here, it's too warm for the snow to survive. But that's not the case if you go a little north, you go to other parts of the world. The sun can shine. In fact, in Calgary, the sun shines most days of the year. They have very high hours of sunshine per year. But a good half of that year, there's not much warmth in the sun. And so the snow survives. The snow will lie there. It will come November and it will still be there in your yard in April. 
But the sun's up almost every day. And the, the, the brilliance, the brightness, you can see, it will blind you. If you've ever gone skiing, you will know this is one of the warnings. Keep your goggles on. Don't ski without your goggles. You will blind yourself if the sun is out as you ski. Well, this was the experience of looking at Christ. His raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow. It is a foretaste of the glory to be bestowed upon him. Here we have one who never gave up his divinity, always had the glory of his divinity, but it is veiled. It is veiled in humanity. And his human nature has to be fitted for another state. This is what he prayed for in John 17, verse 5. Now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. And he is not saying, give back to me the, the, the divine glory that he always had, but it is for the humanity of Christ to reflect glory. It is the glory of one who has kept the law perfectly, has done the will of the Father, and has then veiled with glory, clothed with glory. And this is, this is the ultimate end of communion. It is transformation. It is glory. It is to be more like the one in whose presence you have come. This is what it was for Jesus Christ as He entered in before the Father. As He prayed, the fashion of His countenance was altered and His raiment white and glistering. I say to you, beloved, this transformation is not just a foreshadowing of the glory of Jesus Christ, that is true. But you have to see that it's in conjunction that as He prayed, He's been changed as He prayed. It is pulling together the significance of perfect communion, that one in perfect communion will be transformed. Now, we can never know perfect communion this side of eternity. But we can know a transformation in our lives and it does not come by a list of rules whereby you endeavor to try harder. There are responsibilities for every Christian. But if we begin with this, the rest of it will fall. If our focus isn't so much cold obedience to the letter but the desire for fellowship with God. How can there not be transformation? As he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered. He used to say that about McShane, you know. Robert Murray McShane, a young man would get up into the pulpit there in Dundee, and there were times where it seemed as if he glowed as he walked out of the presence of God and stood before the people to whom he ministered. Were they, were they waxing eloquent? I sometimes wonder. I do. Are they, are they being poetic? Are they, being, are they elevating his character beyond the reality? But, but the, the, the testimony is consistent one man said of McShane that, I don't understand McShane. Grace seems natural to him. Let that sink in. <laughs> Grace is not natural to any of us. 
The transformation of our lives is a work of God. We depend upon the Spirit of God. But, but as he viewed McShane, it seemed as if there was a distinction between him and the rest of humanity. Grace seems natural to him. What was it but his prayer life? As he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistering. You want to be a better father? Pray. You want to be a better husband? Pray. A better wife and mother? Pray. Want to be able to obey your parents, children? Pray. Neglect prayer to your own demise. Neglect prayer to your certain frustration. Neglect prayer and you will experience the hardship of walking out of step with God. Thirdly, the needed mediator in communion. The needed mediator in communion. Verse 30 says, And behold, there talked with him two men which were Moses and Elias. Often people ask, why Moses and Elijah? Why these two men? Is it because they reflect the division of the Old Testament in terms of the law, Moses and the prophets, Elijah? Is that why it's them? They're these key individuals in the history of Israel? The distinction between law and prophets? Is it because God was involved in the burial of Moses and the translation of Elijah? That God's there at, around the time of their death or their translation, as in the case of Elijah? Is that why it's them? Is it because one inaugurated the nation of Israel and the other turned the nation back to God in a certain fashion? Different ideas could be given. Certainly the first one is the one that I have heard most frequently, most often, that it is a reflection of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant. Moses, the law, Elijah, the prophets. And while that is with merit, I think there may be something else going on here. Turn to Exodus 33. Exodus chapter 33. Exodus 33, reading from verse 18. And here's Moses speaking as he's before the Lord. I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cliff of the rock, 
and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by, and I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. Moses wanted to see the glory of God. And the Lord says, in seeing my glory, it is impossible for you to see my face. So he is covered, prevented from seeing the face of God. Turn then to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. Here we're brought into the ministry of Elijah. Reading from, we'll take time to read from verse 4. Elijah went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake baking on the coals and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights on to Horeb, the mount of God. And he came hither unto a cave, and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, and he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go forth, and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. And it was so, it was so when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering in of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, and so on and so forth. Do you notice what happens here as well? The Lord passes by Elijah, and Elijah wraps his head, his face, in his mantle. He covers himself. He will not look at the passing by of the Lord. And so you have, I think, perhaps the heart of why these two men are there upon the mount with the Lord Jesus Christ as Peter and James and John are taken up to witness this event. You have two men who were unable to see God in their life. Men of eminence, men of godliness, men of prayer, men of devotion, men of heart, men of dedication, men of obedience, men of service to God. And yet no matter what they attained in themselves, they were never capable, never permitted, never allowed to see the face of God. But here they are on the mount, on a different mount. Moses was on a mount, Elijah was on a mount, 
Now they're both on a mount again. And now they're able to see the face of God. They are seeing the face of God and the face of Jesus Christ. And this is what I'm seeking for you to understand. There's a need for a mediator in communion. To truly know fellowship with God, intimate fellowship with God, requires a mediator. You can't be in the presence of God and live. You can't survive standing before Him and live. You need a mediator. And here, on this occasion, it is not by chance that here, Elijah and Moses are there able to see God in the face of Jesus Christ and live. They don't have to hide themselves. They don't have to experience some second-rate experience like Moses. No, when he prayed, show me thy glory, here, here, this prayer is answered in a way that far exceeded anything he had before. Yes, both these men had unusual encounters with God, unusual fellowship with God, but neither of them saw the face of God because they did not have the God-man mediator, Jesus Christ. This should encourage us greatly. We are now enabled to see the face of God in the incarnate Son. This is an indication, of course, of the divinity of Jesus Christ. This is what the Lord is doing. These men were in the presence of God. Moses particularly wanted to see God, and here it is fulfilled in Christ. So his desire, his longing to see the face of God is brought to fruition when he looks in the face of Jesus Christ. You have to be blind to not see the deity of Christ in the Scriptures. So this is the need of our hearts. And Paul writes then to Timothy, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And beloved, let us never forget it. Let us never grow weary. Let us never get tired of our expressions in prayer, of our meditation on Jesus Christ as we think upon the fact that our only approach to God is through Christ. That the only way you will ever have an experience with God is through Christ. That the greatest experiences you can have in prayer are only possible because of Christ. And so as you endeavor to seek God, as you desire to meet with God, as you get yourself before God in prayer, as you give yourself in communion to God, rejoice in the fact that through Jesus Christ it can be more than mere muttering requests in your place of prayer. But real communion, real seeing of God, meeting with God. Oh, we, 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 we cut ourselves so short of blessing. We fail to see the immense privileges of the new covenant, the tearing away of the veil, the removal of all the things that prevented those of old coming in before the presence of God. We fail to see it. Don't avail ourselves of this privilege. We have a mediator. We have a great high priest. We have one touched with the feeling of our infirmity. One, all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. One who can condescend to us, draw near to us by His Spirit in such a fashion that we sense in a very real way, that we are in the presence of God Himself. 
I wonder, will you ever know anything of it? I wonder, have you known anything of it? What's, what's, what's the journal of your life in terms of prayer? Have you had any mountaintop experiences? Have you ever been alone with God for extended seasons and God condescends and meets with your heart and soul? Have you ever? Have you ever? Why is it that we sell ourselves short? Our Lord wanted the disciples to experience something of this. To see something of the privilege that they would enjoy because Christ had come. Fourthly, the redemptive grounds for communion. The redemptive grounds. Not only the needed mediator in communion, it's obviously Jesus Christ. The only reason Moses and Elijah are able to be there, talk with him, is because Christ is there. But the redemptive grounds for communion is then expressed in verse 31. Who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. So there's a glory that is revealed in Moses and Elijah, showing that they have indeed died. And here they are, appearing in glory, giving an indication of the glory that will be experienced by all of us who die in Christ. And we also will be able to be in the presence of God without being destroyed. But note the redemptive grounds for communion first. That when they speak of his decease, they're speaking of a truth that was familiar to them as Old Testament saints. The word decease is literally exodus. In other words, they spoke of his departure, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, it doesn't take anyone with much skill or understanding of, of what they're talking about here. They're, they're talking about the exodus of Jesus Christ that he will accomplish at Jerusalem. He's going to depart. He's going to go through an exodus, if you like, as the language reveals, when he gets to Jerusalem. And you can see the pulling together of the, of the, of the imagery, don't you? I hope you see it. The Exodus, of course, reminds us of that event of the Israelites being taken out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, away from slavery. By means of the blood shed and the Passover lamb, they are set free so that the Lord says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Jesus Christ becomes our Passover. And by the shedding of His blood, there's the removal of judgment. And this is Christ then doing what was foreshadowed in the exodus of the Israelites in Egypt. They're bringing out of Egypt. That was all foreshadowing what's happening right here. What he is dealing with, what they're discussing, they're looking forward. Moses was there. Moses was there. He was at the head. He was experiencing it all. The miracles of the Lord, the deliverance of the Lord, the Passover, the preservation of the firstborn when the blood was sprinkled upon the doorposts and lentils of the homes of the Israelites. He saw it all. But it was all pointing forward and here he is. I, I, I think we should sense something of the excitement that is in Moses' heart to, to talk of the decease, of the exodus of the Messiah. Because all that journey, all that experience as the millions of Israelites left Egypt was all pointing forward and here he is speaking of the reality. The day has come. Messiah is here. He's going to perform the final exodus that he should accomplish at Jerusalem. So note that this is a truth familiar to Old Testament saints. 
Moses and Elijah can discuss intelligently about this matter. They understand. They've been looking for this. These signs that were given to them, these sacrifices that they exercised and practiced that God had given to them, they knew that it wasn't that reconciliation before God was not based upon their offering up of these sacrifices. They knew that just as well as David did when he records that fact in Psalm 51. So with excitement they discuss the exodus. This is also a truth considered by glorified saints, not just a truth familiar to Old Testament saints, but is considered by glorified saints. These men are glorified. You might think, well, what's the relevance of the cross once you're already in glory? Does it have any relevance there? <laughs> oh, think about that day. Think about glory. Oh, that we would live. Oh, that we would learn to meditate more on eternity. Amen. This was one of the things that Calvin said was essential for the believer's life. I can't remember the others, but I remember that one, that that was it. The meditation on eternity. Thinking upon eternity. We're, we, we don't want to think about eternity. We want to imagine we're going to be here forever. I'll think about it five minutes before I die. But that is not the Christian life. Abraham lived seeking for a city whose, whose builder and maker was God. That is, Abraham lived his life in anticipation of a place that was built not with the hands of man, but by God. He knew that everything that was promised to him was all just a foreshadowing, an illustration, an indication of what would come in glory itself. What a blessing to be John the Baptist. John the Baptist has the privilege of entering into heaven, and the entire theme of heaven is the exact same theme of his life. Behold the Lamb of God. What a privilege. Think about the things that you campaign for and you talk about, the things you spend your life publishing and spreading. Think about all the politicians who try to get you on board to push their agenda, and you spend hours and days and months and years. And again, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that Christians should walk away from political involvement. That's not my point. But I want you just to get a sense of balance at the very least. What a crying shame to enter into glory and we begin to talk about something we barely discussed at all in our lives. John passes from death into glory, out of this world into the next, proclaiming and singing the same theme of his entire life. Behold the Lamb! Behold the Lamb. That's the way to live and that's the way to die as best you can. Make the theme of your life the theme of glory. The thing you talk about, that which you're going to discuss and sing of in glory itself, the Lamb. You can do nothing better with your life. We know this. We know that the Lamb is central. We, we know this. If you go, well, I'll read it to you whether you want to turn there or not. It's up to you. But Revelation 5 Revelation 5. We are told of this number, 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, verse 11. An innumerable multitude, to use other language, 
of Revelation. An innumerable multitude saying, verse 12, with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. That's the theme of Emmanuel's land. Why could it not be the theme of life? Of our existence here? So glorified saints have, have a desire to speak of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. And so should we. We should talk much about it. It ties in even to what we made mention of this morning and what we made mention of a couple of weeks ago in 2 Thessalonians 2. The, 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 the imbalanced focus upon, upon the return of the Lord Jesus Christ with, with little meditation and consideration of his death and resurrection. But in Emmanuel's land, it's all about it's all about the Lamb who was slain, who risen from the dead bears His wounds throughout eternity, for us to gaze upon and never forget the means by which and the grounds upon which we are in that place where there is no need of sun or moon. But notice also this was a truth recently denied by Peter. This truth of Christ's decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem, was recently denied by Peter. Many of you, no doubt, are familiar with the exchange between Christ and Peter found in Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 23. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go on to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. When did that occur? About eight days prior. He pulled together the events Though Luke does not record this exchange, it's, it's about a week prior to this. I think, I think that's maybe, maybe why Luke and Matthew and Mark make reference to the days that have passed, because there's a relationship between the Mount of Transfiguration and Peter being taught the importance of Christ's decease before His glory, when he had, in, the, in a brazen manner, said to Christ, it will not be. I'll not let it happen. And so the Spirit of God is pulling a connection between these events. A week later, Christ takes Peter up into a mountain to see his heroes, Moses and Elijah, discuss the decease of Christ and its significance in relation to his glory. That without the Exodus, there is no glory. Yes, Peter needed, needed to be taught in a way he would never forget. Christ's path to glory was via the cross. 
Moses and Elijah understood it. They knew the importance of it. They got it. These Old Testament saints knew there has to be atonement for sin. Peter, Peter missed it. does make you wonder, of course, not to beat a dead horse, but when you see Elijah and Moses discussing the decease of Christ, it does make you wonder what, what part about that was, was the plan B. <laughs> this is where their heart leans. It is to the fact that their Messiah must live and die. And he is going to accomplish it at Jerusalem. That is, fulfill or complete it at Jerusalem. You read language like that, and immediately, if I imagine that there is echoing in your, in your heart, in your mind, there is the echoing of those glorious words, it is finished. He's going to accomplish it at Jerusalem. He is going there to finish something. So, for those who understand this, like Moses and Elijah, who are, who are looking and considering and pondering and, and excited to discuss all these things, they're not surprised by the tri- triumphant cry of Christ on Calvary's middle tree. They're expecting it. He is going there to accomplish something. He is going there to say, it is finished, it is done. The price has been paid Atonement has been made. The redemptive grounds for communion then are essential. This is what Peter didn't understand. And this is what Peter and James and John were taught that day. Christ is saying over and over again, I must go to Jerusalem, I must suffer many things, I must die. And they don't want it, they don't like it. They're in opposition to it. But Christ brings them into this this event that would forever be etched in their minds, that they would learn that there must be this way. It must. There must be atonement for sin in order to have communion with God. Fifthly, the imperfect example of communion. The imperfect example of communion. Verse 32 and 33. But Peter, and they that were with him, were heavy with sleep. And when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. And it came to pass, as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias, not knowing what he said. There's an imperfect example of communion here. First, they show physical weakness, don't they? They show physical weakness. They were heavy with sleep. How often this reflects our experience of communion with God, heavy with sleep. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. We are cumbered by physical weakness, weariness, and inability. And here we have it. The apostles of our Lord... Heavy with sleep. Heavy with sleep. Oh, how can it be, Peter? Are you not paying attention? What's wrong with you, man? The Lord has cut you off, even the, even the very event of it. The rest of you disciples stay here. Peter, James, and John, you come with me. There has to be a sense of anticipation. 
What's going to happen? They've already had this. And when the Lord had cut them off and brought him, brought them along with him, they were again amazed to see the miracle of the raising of the dead. So they should have been anticipating something marvelous, something wonderful. But doesn't that so accurately reflect us? I can tell you that prayer is wonderful. And you say, preacher, I know it. Prayer is great. Prayer is sweet. Prayer is wonderful. We, we could talk about it and, and talk about our experiences and what the Lord has taught us. And we can share our mutual understanding of the significance of, of communion with God. And we could discuss it for hours and, and elevate it and read about it and share what others have said about it and, and have our hearts filled with a sense of how vital, how important, how significant, how privileged we are to be able to pray. And go home, seek to pray, and fall asleep. That's you and that's me. This is us amidst our infirmities. We are an imperfect example of communion. If the world is wanting to know what perfect communion with God looks like, <laughs> don't look at any of us. We are weary. We are burdened by our physical infirmity. But not only do they show physical weakness, they show spiritual ignorance, don't they? I'm told in verse 33 came to pass as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias, not knowing what he said. Yes, not knowing what he said. There's much that could be said here. But, as usual, we might say, Peter had a way of getting things back to front, of putting his foot in it. Tries to stop Christ going to the cross. And now he wants to make permanent that which was temporary, the experience on the mount. These things are written for our learning, beloved. The weakness and ignorance of the disciples encourages us to recognize that we are similar to them, and yet God does not discard us. He's not finished with us. He's not going to set us aside and say, you're a pathetic excuse for a Christian. There's nothing you can do. Didn't do it with Peter. He doesn't do it with you. Yes, even as we pray, so often we pray ignorantly. We ask God for things that we shouldn't be asking for. We think this would be a great idea, Lord. Do it. And thankfully, He doesn't do it. Oh, we see much of ourselves in them. And as I say, that's to our encouragement. Because these men, as frail and feeble and ignorant as they are, are going to do exploits for God. Remember that. They're going to do exploits for God. And when you boil it all down, and you really look at why or what made the most significant difference in, in the turning point of their lives, you know what you're going to find? You're going to find these men learn to pray. They learn to wait on God. Oh, it wasn't that they went to a class and a seminar that taught them how to be leaders. Get all the silver bullets of 
of spiritual leadership and church planting and all the rest of it. No, they learned. They learned to commune with God. That brings us finally then to see the desired experience in communion. The desired experience in communion. Verse 34, While he thus spake, there came a cloud and overshadowed them. And they feared as they entered into the cloud, and there came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. What's the desired experience in communion? Two things. First of all, to sense the presence of God. The desired experience in communion is to sense the presence of God. How little we know of it. What is somewhat remarkable here is that though Peter is wrong in his desire to erect tabernacles, one for the Lord and one for Moses and one for Elijah, I can understand why he thought about erecting tabernacles. I think I can see why. They are there in the presence of glory. They're seeing the glory of God and the face of Christ and the the glory of Moses and Elijah too. And in that glory, they can't think of the glory of God without thinking also of tabernacles. Think of Exodus chapter 40. The end of Exodus, as it speaks of the erecting of the tabernacle and so on, verse 34 and 35 tell us, Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So when they see glory, they think tabernacle. When they see the glory, they think there, there must be a place to for to. To place this, this, this glory, there's, there has to be something erected here. And what's interesting then, so there's glory there, and he wants a tabernacle. And Verse 34 then says, while he thus spake, as he's saying this, as he's saying, let's erect tabernacles, there came a cloud and overshadowed them. And they feared as they entered the cloud. Why did they fear? Now you not only have the glory of God in the face of Christ, you have a cloud. Again, reading the text in Exodus 40, Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The cloud identified the presence of God. And here a cloud comes together as he's thinking, let's build a tabernacle. A cloud comes and they fear. Again, they're they're Jews, they're they're Israelites. They're, They're thinking, you have to contain this. The high priest could only enter in once, once a year. In before the mercy seat, where the pillar of cloud was there, signifying the presence of God. And he had to enter in with blood. One man, once a year, the only person who could stand in the presence of God, depicted by a cloud. And that same man would go in there trembling. 
He doesn't go in with blood or if he goes in in a, a form or manner that is not according as God has stipulated, they feared lest this man be, be cut down. So they're afraid. They're afraid because there's a cloud that comes amidst this glory. Read in Leviticus 16 verse 2, I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. That's where God said he would be. That mercy seat that was in the holiest of all. But they're being taught something here. Peter, there's no more need for a tabernacle. Christ is the tabernacle. And there's no more need to fear the cloud because Christ is the mercy seat where that cloud is known. You have this depicted in a wonderful illusion, maybe even more than an illusion. On the day of the resurrection, when Mary walks in to the tomb and she looks there and she sees two angels, one at the head and one at the feet, there where Christ was laid, just like the very mercy seat itself, which had the two cherubim watching over the place that signified the presence of God. Now you have these two angels in the tomb, watching over the place where the body, where the tabernacle of Christ was that dwelt with men. He did not know what he said. Peter had much to learn. But the presence of God was there. It was there in Christ. It was there in the cloud as it came together with Christ overshadowing them. But not only is the desire to experience, our desire to experience in communion, communion to sense the presence of God, it is also finally to hear a word from God. Verse 35, there came a voice out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. What's the most important word to hear when it comes to communion with God? What's the most important word to hear when you're in the presence of God? It is that you have a right to be there. And so it takes our minds again to Christ. Here the Father speaks to His Son. This is my beloved Son. He's found acceptance with me. Therefore you can be in the presence of God for you're in union with Him. You need not fear. You need not run away. Don't be afraid, Peter, as you stand there in that cloud and God the Father speaks out of heaven and as it would have been back for the Israelites as they stood at the foot of Sinai, they'd be trembling at the sound of the voice of God. And no longer. The wrath of God has been appeased. The work has been complete. Atonement. Atonement is, is all coming together in the offering up of God's Son on Calvary. And the whole purpose of it, the whole purpose of it, it's communion. It's all, it's all communion. It's so that you can talk with the Lord and not fear Him. Not be overcome by your failures and your sins. You see your sins and then you see the sacrifice offered for them. 
You see the blood of Christ shed on your behalf and you hear the word of God. You hear the word of God, this is my son. I've accepted him. You need not fear. The event closes in verse 36. When the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone. And they kept it close and told no man in those days any of those things which they had seen. Yes. Intimate fellowship with God, lofty experiences with the Lord are things not to be bragged about or pushed out onto social media, but to be pondered in the heart, to be treasured in the memory. Communion with God. Christian, this is it. This whole event is an unforgettable reminder, lesson, pointer to the significance of communion. What a wonderful Redeemer we have. Let's bow together in prayer. Let's all of us pray. you're here tonight and you're not saved communion with God begins with a cry whosoever shall call whosoever shall cry upon the name of the Lord shall be saved it begins with a call just cry out God be merciful to me a sinner a life of communion begins with a cry Have you cried to the Lord? Have you turned from your sin? Why not now? Why not today? Why not begin a life of communion with God? Fellowship with Christ. If you need help, if you need me to open the scriptures and instruct you in any way, don't be shy to let me know. Someone will be able to find me and I'll be glad to open the word of God with you. Lord, we pray that thou wilt help us to imbibe thy word. Help us to understand who thou art and what thou hast done. And whatever we accomplish in our lives, we pray for a deepening work in the place of prayer. Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. Every single day, give us a lesson in prayer. Every day, open up thy word to us. Every day, remind us of who thy Son is and what we have in him. Every day, by thy Spirit, prompt us to seek thy face and commit all our burdens and cares to thee. Every day, help us to delight in thee, to keep our gaze upon thee, and to tell the world about thee. Be with those who go downstairs. May the fellowship be sweet and profitable. Bless the food. Strengthen our bodies. Be with all who converse before they go home. Be with us all as we go to our homes. 
And grant, Lord, that we might know thy favor and blessing upon us this week. We give thee praise, Lord. We thank thee in Jesus' name for what we have in thy Son. And we're so grateful that we can look unto him who is able to keep us from falling and present us faultless before the presence of thy glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Savior. Be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. Amen. Thank you.